We here at Those Happy Podcasts stand with the protesters around the country fighting for human rights. We're donating our Patreon funds from the month of May to Black Lives Matter in support of the fight to end police brutality against Black Americans. We're also donating our Patreon funds from the month of June to The Trevor Project in support of LGBTQ youth of color. We feel like this is the right thing to do. Our podcasts and the community surrounding them must do the work of dismantling racism and prejudice. We'd like to call for the community to show their support to these important organizations. Please consider donating to Black Lives Matter and The Trevor Project. But if you can't donate right now, that's okay. Please consider spreading the word. The fight is not over. Good progress is being made. Okay, enjoy the episode. Welcome back to Those Happy Places, the podcast that treats theme parks, rides, and attractions like literature. I'm Buddy Duquesne. And I'm Alice White. And Alice, we are back for part four of the ever-expanding series about Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room that we affectionately refer to as Birds of Paradise. Uh, It's good to be back and talking about this amazing uh, and important and influential uh, attraction and all of the fun stories and interesting uh, facts and history around it. And we've had a lot of fun and and learned a lot over the last few episodes. Yeah, uh, and and Alice, I've been uh, kind of reflecting on everything that we've learned, and I've uh, kind of taken a lot of inspiration uh, from the aesthetic and style of Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room, and I have declared this summer, uh, we're recording this in May of 2020, uh, summer of 2020 is going to be my summer of tiki Ooh, yeah i've gone out and i've uh, purchased for myself a few new uh tiki themed shirts in fact i'm wearing one right now it has uh flamingos all over it oh excellent i'm not sure flamingos are native to uh hawaiian islands or uh any islands but (laughs) this is a flamingo shirt (laughs) i'm sure it's adorable yeah it's it is great and uh i've got several other brand new tiki shirts and i've decided that yeah for for the rest of the summer i'm gonna endeavor to uh embrace body the tiki aesthetic the tiki lifestyle and the more i've kind of delved into this the more i've started to wonder what does that even mean what does that mean like what does the 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 tiki lifestyle even uh translate to nowadays yeah i mean where did it come from and where did it go and where might it come from cotton eye joe (laughs) (laughs) Um, but where might it be going? Um, and what does Tiki, what what does Tiki bring to the table um, in terms of its connection to Hawaiian history, uh, American history, and um, its connection to you know our current lives? Because I've noticed that Tiki has experienced something of a resurgence lately. That's right. Tiki bars and uh, the uh, ever-expanding popularity of places like Trader Sam's in the in the fandom in Disney fandom and and other places as well. Uh, the re um, let's see the the fashion resurgence of the Aloha shirt as uh, for for all genders and uh, just. Yeah, I, I've seen more tiki bars and, and stuff like that pop up more 
often and in more places outside of, say, California. Yeah. And and I guess, you know, I'm, I'm being a little rhetorical because we kind of actually know the answer because we've done some research. But um, it's interesting to think of Tiki because uh, Tiki is made up, right? It's like a <laughs> kind of a, a fictional set of aesthetics and attitudes. Um, it's kind of like a surfer dude meets Hawaiian meets... Uh, a certain kind of a shirt <laughs> meets a, a general laid backness, um, and also meets like lots of rum drinks, like lots of drinks with rum in them. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's not really based in actual Hawaiian culture uh, so much as it's kind of a uh, a melting pot of aesthetics, tropical aesthetics. Um, that we kind of equate with coming from the Hawaiian Islands, but it's a little more complicated than that. Absolutely. And uh, as we discussed uh, before in this series, uh, a lot of this discussion um, hinges on uh, colonialism and American imperialism. And, uh, and so it becomes kind of a tricky subject to navigate um, in terms of what is or is not cultural appropriative about um about any of the, this aesthetic or um or about the this the quote-unquote tiki lifestyle yeah. um but i think at some point um it the tiki lifestyle the tiki aesthetic has morphed into kind of its own thing yeah heavily you know steeped in um in hawaiian cultural tradition um, maybe on the outside, but I think uh, uh, there's kind of an Americana vibe to it now that um, that has kind of made it its own thing. Um, and it's uh, it's been an interesting um, interesting thing to watch and to research as it has changed over the last century. Um, and uh, I'm really excited to keep talking about it. Yeah, uh, I, I think the thing that to me makes it seem uh, only very surface level associated with Hawaiian culture and Hawaiian aesthetics specifically is that the word tiki is also made up. <laughs> That's yes. So not only, as you said, <laughs> is the tiki culture just made up within the last century or so, um, because, but also because the word tiki was, was made up. It is a, a, a mistranslation or like a derivative of the actual Hawaiian word, um, which is ki'i, K-I apostrophe I. Um, and so I, I think it was misheard or mistranslated uh, into the word tiki um, at some point in just fairly recently if we're talking about the scale of uh of you know human history just within yeah. the last you know 100 200 years yeah and if we were thinking of like what the noun tiki means outside of like uh tiki culture like what is a tiki mm -hmm. um like what is the tiki in a tiki room i guess what we might be talking about is a hawaiian style uh idol or god right like a right 
a, like a the, certain a, like a representation a wooden, of a god. Yeah, like a wooden carving of a god onto, say, a, like a, a wall or a, a pillar, yeah. uh, or even as a standalone little statue. That's interesting because they're not called tiki's; they're called kii. And uh, we here at the Those Happy Places podcast are going to continue to use the word tiki because that is the uh, title of the main text, uh, Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room. And it's also the word that we understand to represent this culture, right? Uh, Not necessarily the actual word that it's derived from, uh, but instead this kind of Americanized idea of that culture. So... That's that's why we're going to stick with Tiki for the rest of this episode. Okay, so how did Tiki arrive in the United States? Where did it come from, and why are we talking about it today? So the major uh, influence of the rise of Tiki culture or of uh, Hawaiian influence on American culture, um, we can trace directly back to our uh, good old friends, uh, uh the Dole family and the and the uh, Hawaiian Pineapple Company, um, when they when the Dole Pineapple Hawaiian Pineapple Company, which later became the Dole Pineapple Company, first started um, marketing their pineapples, their canned pineapples in America. Um, they uh, unleashed a marketing campaign that relied heavily on um, marketing their pineapples alongside the image of this exotic place called Hawaii. Um, they, as we've said before, they imagined a world where the pineapple was the fruit of kings, um, and they made it very exclusive, very fancy, and they even went so far as to bring that marketing campaign into the real life, not just like in print. Um, the Dole Pineapple Company, or the Hawaiian Pineapple Company, um, sponsored a a widely publicized and hugely famous uh, plane race across the Pacific Ocean. They said that they would they sponsored the um, the whole race, and they said to anyone who can fly from California to Hawaii, first person to do it, the person who do it the fastest. Um, will win a massive cash prize. And so they they did. And this was a widely publicized event that lots and lots of people arrived to watch the planes take off and start their journey. People tracked it in newspapers and um, and for for a long time. Um, this event also ended up ha- resulting in the deaths of several pilots. Who yeah, were a unable to stunt that claimed several <laughs> lives. Yeah, so these these pilots who were unable to uh, to complete the journey successfully, um, but despite the um, the death toll that this publicity stunt had, it was successful in getting the uh, the Hawaiian Pineapple Company's name associated and 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 pineapples in general associated with this place, this Hawaiian paradise that only solidified itself further uh, into the American consciousness with the arrival of World War II. Right. World War II, which saw many American soldiers uh, in the Pacific theater um, and many American soldiers stationed on Hawaii uh, in Pearl Harbor and other bases there. 
Um, so this caused a uh, sort of opening up of those soldiers' uh, experience. Uh, and, it, you know, a, a, I, I wouldn't say this caused a romanticization of uh, Polynesian culture, but it certainly like introduced people to it right sure yeah and then we had soldiers coming home yes and they were eager to share that i think is what caused the romantic romanticization wow that's a hard word to say romanticization of the of the the cultures of the south pacific um i think that not just them come going, but their return. On their return, they brought back souvenirs. They brought back stories. Um, some brought back photographs of all of the different places that they saw um, while while abroad. They, uh, and and it wasn't just Hawaii, but it was a, a lot of different places in the South Pacific, from uh, the Philippines and Indonesia and uh, Fiji and and lots of other uh, island nations. Uh, that saw American occupation um, and those soldiers who who were based there or stopped off there and, and were able to bring home various souvenirs and stories uh, got their families into the aesthetic as well. Uh, it inspired so many people that you also, after World War II uh, and, and through the century, saw an influx of people who decided to to move back to that area and, and a pretty pretty good sized um, group of expats who decided to remain in the South Pacific. It was that popular for America. Now another contribution to the rise of tiki culture is the end of something else, uh, not just the end of World War II, but previously the end of prohibition and the rise of the tiki bar. Yes. Um, now, as far as we can tell, the first tiki bar open in the United States was in 1933. Uh, Don's Beachcomber, a Poly- Polynesian-themed bar and restaurant out of Hollywood, California, that unfortunately closed its doors for the last time in 2018. Boo. Um, but this place, when it opened, served more or less... Uh, Chinese-style cuisine um, <laughs> while also serving punch drinks and uh, kind of embodying what we now know as kind of Hawaiian uh, aesthetics. So, you know, flower lays, tiki torches, uh, furniture made of woven uh, straw, you know, the the usual sort of tiki aesthetic was already in place in the 1930s and it would only become more solidified by these images of soldiers coming back from war with you know that experience of seeing this culture firsthand um now i've got i've got a personal story about tiki bars um i live pretty close to the uh original trader vicks uh, and Trader Vic is another tiki bar that opened around this era uh, that claims to be the originator of the Mai Tai, Ooh. which is a very important uh, drink in both uh, general tiki and now in like Hawaiian tourism culture, uh, which is interesting, right? We would think of this as a Hawaiian drink, but it was invented in Oakland, California. Um, and uh, it's I don't know if you can actually claim to have invented the Mai Tai. 
Because the Mai Tai <laughs> is rum and juice. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So it's not really a... Um, it's not really an inventable thing, because I feel like for as long as there's been rum and juice, the Mai Tai has existed. Um, <laughs> but, you know, uh, this was kind of a formalization of a tiki culture in the States, right? Kind of right. a naming of things, uh, a kind of making up of things, and a kind of popularization and commodify commodi commoditization of things. Um and, and it was all about that feeling of providing an experience of the exotic, right? Uh, something beyond the usual. So when we talk about tiki and how it's a melting pot of cultures, I mean, even to this day, what you can buy in terms of food at Trader Vic's is more or less Asian fusion. Um, it's pot stickers. It's uh, noodles and rice dishes. It's uh, pork belly, things like that. It's not really what we would consider native Hawaiian cuisine, which would probably be more fish-based. Um, this is this is kind of meat, starch, that sort of thing. Right. Um, and so it's yeah. The the Asian fusion is a is a, a good way to put it. Uh, Asian influences on uh, traditional American uh, meals, something that is uh, both exotic and familiar. And these places like Trader Vic's and Don the Beachcombers were fantastically popular, um, and only grew more popular not just after the war, but in the rise of mid-century um, uh, movies and television shows that that gained massive popularity. Things like the uh, Elvis film Blue Hawaii or the television show Hawaiian Eye, uh, which became really, really popular through the uh, early 50s, early to mid 50s, and yeah, it, only inspired people further. And you you can even see people like Clark Gable over at Don the Beachcombers in Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, this was this was big business. It was big culture, um, and it was definitely caught up in a bit of Hollywood glamour, uh, to the point where even that show you mentioned, Hawaiian Eye, um, would feature like shots of Hawaii as opening shots, but then be shot entirely in California. Yeah, it's like, a little, the, little cheaper, maybe. <laughs> yeah, well, the the rise of tiki culture is inexorably tied to mainland culture as well and i think especially to californian culture i mean what is california if not the rest of the nation's gateway to hawaii true, <laughs> that is our for... main function as a state <laughs> <laughs> well true for a long time the only uh, flights commercial flights that you could catch to hawaii had to leave out of los angeles um because of how close they, they you know it, it's the closest major uh spot on the mainland to hawaii um and uh california it's face forward to the world for so long has been beach culture and hollywood glamour and when you combine those things together uh with a nationwide uh hysteria about all things tiki um the the California, Southern California really does become kind of a a hub for that uh, for this aesthetic and this world, uh, which yeah. makes it a perfect place for something like for somebody 
like, say, Mr. Walt Disney himself when he comes to California uh, to be majorly influenced. But I think we'll, we'll get to that more in a second. Yeah. Uh, be- before we do, I'd like to talk about one more major symbol of tiki culture. And how it came to be is an amazing story. Um, we're taking some cues from a fellow podcast on this one, aren't we? Absolutely. I really want to talk about the Aloha shirt, um, which is a topic that they cover um, as part of the Articles of Interest uh, series through 99% Invisible, which is one of my all-time favorite podcasts ever made. And the episode that they did about the uh, Hawaiian shirt, the Aloha shirt, is uh, is amazing. And... Um, it covers much more history um, than than what we're going to cover right now. But I just wanted to, if you haven't heard that segment, I wanted to talk um, a, a little bit about the uh, Hawaiian shirt and where it um, where it kind of came into the came into the culture through the through the mid century um, tiki fad. The very first Aloha shirts were being printed uh, starting in about uh, 1936 out of uh, kimono fabric that was cut to be uh, in like a t-shirt shape um, for, it was extra fabric and um, and something easy to make and was very kind of niche just for Hawaii for so long. Um, but when soldiers came home to the mainland, uh, bringing these souvenir shirts with them, um, they started getting to be a little more popular. And so in, in, uh, 1962, there was a group uh, in Hawaii that was dedicated to, um, uh, to making the Aloha shirt massively popular. They said, we're just going to make this fat take off. And they called themselves Operation Liberation. And what a they, name. I know, right? It's like the safety um, council. And and so they had Operation Liberation and the Hawaiian Fashion Guild. And they set up state representatives and senators with Aloha shirts. Um, and they lobbied to get the state legislature to wear their um wear the Aloha shirts as like a let's support Hawaiian manufacturers thing. They said, let's wear these every Friday. And so in 67, they created 1967, they created this thing called Aloha Fridays. And that did morph entirely into the idea of casual Fridays, um, which is now something that a lot of offices do across the U.S. and possibly across the world. Um, the idea of wearing something a little more comfortable and casual on Fridays uh, started with the uh, the Aloha shirt and the uh, Hawaiian Fashion Guild that said, let's just try to promote something that is made on Hawaii by Hawaiians and see what and see what happens. And it became a, a, a phenomenon that is still very popular with lots of dads. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently now me. And um, now Buddy Duquesne. And you know what? I'll step into it too. I love an Aloha shirt. I think they're beautiful. They're fashionable. They uh, they breathe easily. And that was entirely the point, was to let's introduce a garment that can be dressed up or down um, that is a lot more comfortable than wearing a traditional suit. 
Um, especially because Hawaii is so hot. <laughs> yeah. And so Hawaii kind of gets this reputation of this casual laid back vibe when the uh, Aloha shirt is introduced to the world. And um, and almost single-handedly influenced like an entire generation's uh, you know perspective on the nation of Hawaii. And now they're so popular that um, that lots and lots of business people wear them, um, not just on Fridays anymore. <laughs> um, especially in Hawaii, where it's again just so dang hot um, that. The uh, Aloha shirt has become standard uh, wear for plenty of people in, prof- in even in the most professional settings. I'm going to make a bold claim Ooh. Uh, that I don't think I'm qualified to make, so I'm not actually going to make it. But I, I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to draw an interesting comparison here. Hawaiian annexation happened because a few people got together and said, "We're going to make this thing happen." Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, consequences yep. and morality be damned. <laughs> the exact same thing happened with the Aloha shirt. A uh, ca- small council got together, said, we're going to make this thing big. And they did. And they uh, did. It, it's, it seems to be a, uh interesting parallel, if nothing else, um, about Hawaiian culture exporting itself to the United States uh, through just a few individual people. Yeah, and but this uh, the big difference, I suppose, is that this group was very focused on making sure that Hawaiian manufacturers and the economy of Hawaii was being benefited by everyone else enjoying uh, their culture. Whereas I think the uh, the the big difference was that the um, the group that got Hawaii annexed was pretty much focused on their own profits. I think yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, interestingly, that you're right. That that comes from a, a, a place where they say, "Hey, let's let's export something to everyone um, and make some money off of it." And and they did, and it worked. And a you know half a century later, we're still wearing them. Yeah, and you know when you say 1962 is when this group gets together and starts this lobbying, and 1963 is when the Enchanted Tiki Room opens. It's hard not to see how a certain animation guy uh, <laughs> living in, you know, Los Angeles, California, uh, who had recently become massively successful with his uh, film studio and theme park business, <laughs> might have gotten swept up in this whole thing. I mean, Walt Disney is born in 1901. Similarly born in 1901 was the Hawaiian Pineapple Company. <laughs> they they arrived onto this planet the same year. <laughs> I, I mean, in as much as companies are born, it's interesting <laughs> because we have Walt being born just a few years after Hawaiian annexation. He probably witnesses the beginning of Dole's uh, highly publicized ad campaigns. Uh, he becomes a success and moves to California right as these tiki bars are opening and becoming highly popular. And then he opens a theme park and it's hard not to imagine him saying to himself, you know what, this new state is really, really popular and great and I'm having a good time with it too. Let's do something with that. And so the Enchanted Tiki Room springs forth almost parallel to the Aloha shirt itself, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and becomes wildly popular, uh, not just for, I'd say, not just for its aesthetics and its, 
you know, the popularity of a, of a place like that would be popular. <laughs> I mean, it would get popular in this, you know, in the environment that it comes up in. And then you add on top of it, the amazing technology and the strides made in animatronics at the same time and you've got a hit on your hands yeah i couldn't imagine a better timing for the success of this attraction exactly um everything perfectly aligned from uh tourism to technology to fashion it was all there just at the right moments uh even the first uh, sponsor being United Airlines and some of the first jet planes flying to Hawaii now only taking five short hours. Um, you know, that would have been just the right time. Like, it, it's just the right timing. Everything is happening exactly perfectly for Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room to burst onto the stage and be an immediate success. Mm -hmm. An immediate classic, almost. Yeah, and just about a decade later, the Dole Food Company comes in and takes over sponsorship of the of the Tiki Room, and that partnership was uh, that partnership was born and continues still to this day. So perhaps. In a future episode, we will cover that transition. <laughs> um, but for now, I think I'd like to say one last thing about tiki culture. Go for it. It definitely fell out of style. Definitely. Like, almost completely. Right. And now when we talk about tiki, we talk about it in a uh, retro, retro sense. Like, we talk about it as kind of a quaint, old-fashioned thing. It's not mainstream anymore. No, not really. Um, it had a minor resurgence in the in the nineties. Uh, went back out of style again. Um, it seems to come and go, um, along with lots of other fashions. Um, but yeah, I think now when you when a tiki bar becomes popular, uh, I think like we said, seeing a minor minor resurgence now. Um, it's more of a, oh, the Tiki Bar, what a cool retro uh, place to go. It's going to remind us of back in the good old days or something like that. It's not a, oh, here's a cool, modern, fashionable place to go. Yeah, and, and I, I would caution us in our summer of Tiki um, <laughs> from uh, thinking of it as a good old days sort of a thing. Exactly. Instead, we should think of it, I think... Tiki is best embodied as a form of like internal escapism. Uh, <laughs> thinking of it as like today, I'm just gonna put I'm gonna put myself on island time, right? Like <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna feel like I'm on vacation. I'm gonna feel like I'm at a tropical destination. I'm gonna try and create that atmosphere and aesthetic for myself. And I think that's the beauty of Tiki. It, it's that it's a fantasy. Yeah. Um, in fact, Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room might be more at home in Fantasyland. <laughs> um, because it, it it's really all about the kind of um, small magic that you can make for yourself with this idea of relaxation. Yeah, that's nice. I like that. And especially now here in 2020 where things are just a little strange. Just a just little a strange, li a little stressful. Little, just a little strange and stressful. Sure. Um, to say, what about island time for a minute? Uh, that sounds pretty nice. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I, and I like to think of it like we were saying before, um, as a as the island aesthetic plus this like a dollop of Americana on top, and especially us here in in California, feels almost like celebrating a little bit of of California culture and history too. Yeah. Um, it's just nice to um, to maybe take a step back and and uh, and appreciate and and look around it at you know at at, uh, at a brighter future maybe <laughs> than, yeah. than this uh, weird time that we're here in, in now. Yeah, we can celebrate the multiculturalism of California and how Tiki was able to thrive in that. Yeah, for sure. For sure, I agree. <laughs> Well, Alice, it sounds like our conversation about the rise of tiki culture uh, and its odd uh, confluence with the rise of the Enchanted Tiki Room has come to an end. But the conversation does continue online. As it always does. Every week we say the conversation continues online. And boy, has it. With all of us having just a little bit more time on our hands to spend in front of a screen, we are um, we are thriving on the Doze Happy Places Discord server. Uh, lots of conversations happening. Everything from the Enchanted Tiki Room to, um, to Star Wars and beyond. Uh, if you'd like to join our Discord server to have these conversations with us, you should contact us via email, thosehappyplaces at gmail.com, or maybe on Twitter. Yeah, I am at buddy underscore Duquesne. Duquesne is spelled D-U-Q-U-E-S-N-E. And I'm on Twitter and on Instagram at Alice White THP for those happy places. And you find the show on Twitter at Happy Places Pod. You know, Alice, I think I'm going to put some music into this episode. <gasps> some music. I love music. Yeah, all of the music from this episode was found on the free music archive. I took most of it off of an album called Two Zombies Later. It's a mm-hmm. collection of tiki and exotica themed music. Uh, and you can find all of the details about that in the show notes. We use this music under a Creative Commons. 4.0 attribution license which means we just have to say thank you at the end of the episode so thank you to the artists that we use the music of yes thank you and you can find all of that information in our show notes um in addition also something you can find in the show notes is a link to our patreon patreon.com slash those happy places yes <laughs> patreon.com slash those happy places is the place to go if you want to uh, think about supporting the show you can find uh, mini episodes and some blog posts and uh, all sorts of fun things as well as fun perks at certain levels uh, up to and including stickers and postcards and your name mentioned on every episode of the show fun fact those people that they get their names mentioned on the show yes, are, are dear friends Azam Chaudhry and Charles Gustin who uh, have been supporting the show and uh, we are eternally grateful to you. Yes, thank you to you both. You are gentlemen and scholars. Uh, we could not do this show without your support, without the support of everybody else on the Patreon, and without everybody who's listening to us right now. Um, the best support you can give us as a show is to tell other people about it. If you like what we do on Those Happy Places, uh, spread the word for us. That would be amazing. Absolutely. Um, we love that. And we thank you. And thank you, buddy, for uh, making the show with me. Alice, I couldn't imagine doing the show with another person. You are a fantastic co-host and my best friend. Oh, oh, I'm going <laughs> to cry. You're my best friend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm gonna cry too. Jeez. No. Oh no. Oh man. <laughs> well, <laughs> to everyone out there, thank you for listening, and we hope you return to our tropical hideaway. You lucky people, you. Ooh. <laughs> if we weren't in the show starting 37 minutes ago, we'd be, we'd be in, in the, the audience, audience too. too. All together. <laughs>